Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking, is Mr. Trump the people's president? President Trump spent recent weeks on a riotous campaign tour, holding 11 rallies in eight states in the last week alone. Working the stadium like a boardroom, he presented himself as a man of the people to rapturous crowds. Thank you. We are defending together, with a lot of other great Republicans, your freedom. This election will decide whether we build on the extraordinary prosperity that we've unleashed. We're taking care of ourselves for a change, folks. But how did Donald Trump, real estate billionaire, native of the golf course, convince half of America that he was one of them? My guest today believes the president is an ordinary Joe. Anthony Scaramucci worked for Donald Trump's team for almost a year, culminating in 11, yes, just 11 days, as White House Director of Communications last year. His original trade is finance. He founded and runs investment firm Skybridge Capital, and his new book is called Trump, the Blue Collar President. Anthony Scaramucci, welcome to The Economist Asks. Fantastic introduction. I was hoping you could read it again. Let's look at your work with Donald Trump. You say in your book that it was a story of a unique friendship with the president. So how did the two of you meet and how did you become so close? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to characterize it as close. I think that's unfair. I think we have a good acquaintanceship. We have a good knowledge of each other. And, uh, you know, I think we, we, uh, we enjoy each other's personality. I mean, we both know how to laugh at, at different situations. But uh, I met him uh, in 1995. My old boss uh, introduced me to him. His name was Michael Facitelli. He was at Goldman Sachs at the time. And what I write in the book is that he left a huge impression on me because he was then Donald J. Trump. You know, he had already been a best-selling author and had a colossal success and was wonderful with PR. Uh, and I'm sure I made absolutely no impact on him. It wasn't until the 2008, 9, 10 period of time uh, that we got to know each other because I was working at CNBC and he had the NBC hit show, The Apprentice. And so then we started a more casual relationship. And then our relationship got very serious during the Mitt Romney campaign, where we did two fundraisers in Mr. Trump's apartment. And we had worked on a telethon together and some other things. And so uh, that's when uh, when he indicated three, four years later that he was going to run for president. That's when the relationship really started to develop. You were on the campaign for almost a year. Your takeaway from that is that Mr. Trump is kind of a blue-collar hero. That would be yeah, yeah. I mean, I, what I would say is that he's a hero to the ordinary Joe that you're describing in the introduction. And one of the reasons why I titled the uh, the book The Blue Collar President is I knew that the liberals would set their hair on fire and they would shriek in horror that I would call a guy that was born with a golden toilet seat a blue-collar president. You know, and if you looked at his apartment 
Uh, and you can see it on the internet. His apartment looks like Louis the Fourteenth smoked crystal meth and then decorated the apartment. And so you know he's not a blue-collar person. He's obviously born uh, fairly gilded. And so the notion of the book and the concept was that for whatever reason, he was able to tap into and identify with the middle class and lower middle class struggle in the United States. And there's a struggle like that going on in the United Kingdom, uh, which is also tied to the Brexit. There's a thread here between our two countries where half of the population has felt left out by the process of globalization. And so uh, there's an anger response related to that. The president was able to tap into that. I did 26 campaign stops with him. And when I tell an honest story in the book, I grew up in a blue-collar family. My dad was an hourly worker. Uh, but what I tell in the book is that I started to lose touch with my uh, origin. For whatever reason, and this is unfortunate but very true, as I went to Tufts and Harvard Law School and Goldman Sachs and I started building my hedge fund businesses, I myself started operating in a circle of elites and I started to get the confirmed biases of the elites. And so you spend enough time in Davos, Switzerland, you start thinking like people that go to Davos, Switzerland. And so it wasn't until I got back to my roots on the Trump campaign that I realized that the president was actually talking to the people that I grew up with. I can see that that's the recipe for cooking up the Trump victory. But you spent that time out there on the the road with Donald Trump. Where's the evidence other than the self-mythologizing that attends a lot of presidents, some would argue this uh, more than most, that he actually has any direct connection to people he meets? Can you give me an anecdote? I can tell you a very specific episode. We were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, May of 2016. And we met with a group of workers that were displaced by a factory moving from New Mexico to what they were calling the new New Mexico, which happened to be Mexico. And so you know this, but maybe your listeners don't. The United States lost 65,000 factories after the signing of NAFTA over a 25-year period of time. And so he was sitting there with that group of people at a round table, and he listened to every one of their stories. Now, you could say that was fake listening. You could say that's uh, fake feeling their pain like President Clinton used to be able to do, but it really doesn't matter. They, they responded to him and they attached themselves to him. There were 9,000 people at the Albuquerque Civic Center on May 25th, 2016. There were 7,000 people waiting outside that Civic Center. And so you had 16,000 people. The other establishment candidates could not draw those types of people. So it was a combination of his name you, you recognition. You refer to it yourself. Bill Clinton was often seen as someone who could mm-hmm. evoke that sense of, no of empathy. Mm-hmm. Are they more similar than – I was thinking about the Joe Klein novel about mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, which I think starts with that scene of him sitting there in deep conversation, apparently interested in, in this ordinary guy's stories. Are they you more what, similar you know what, as politicians? You know what is better than sincerity for a politician? Fake sincerity. If you can fake the sincerity, man – you own the world. You know, you know how hard it is for people to actually fake sincerities? I'm not saying it's real or not. It doesn't really matter. What, what matters is 62.8 million people voted for a guy that never worked for the American government. The sincerity point takes us into a tussle I think you've had before about the Trump team and its approach to truth. Do you think it has a fundamentally different approach, the idea of truth to a lot of people oh, you know, who are look, critical well, of it. I mean, look, people get upset with me, you know, that while well, you're you're parsing the word lying versus intentional lying. No, I'm not. I, I say the president's lying. I'm not holding back on that. I don't agree with it, but I'm telling you that there's a strategy there. Uh, he's lying so that a liberal journalist in the mainstream media will set their hair on fire and run around in the television set decrying his lies. 
and he enjoys that. And he also knows that that's feeding the beasts of his base who despise the liberal media establishment and they despise the global elites. And so every time he tells a lie and there's a hall monitor, proctor, checking his lies like the Washington Post does. He's told 9,000 lies since he came into the office. He laughs about it. He thinks it's funny. You're not cynical, isn't it? You may not think it's funny, but he does. Oh, I mean, we're not here to test my sense of humor. I mean, is that cynical? Clearly, you find it quite amusing. It's 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 cynical at the very least. Look, I'm observational about it. I'm not really being political about it. I'm being observational about it. When you say that it's cynical, I would say it's different than being cynical. I would say that this guy feels tortured by the media. 92% of the media is decidedly against him. That's not me saying it. That's the Harvard study that said it. And so his attitude is, okay, you guys are deploying mechanisms of unfairness and dishonesty towards me. Let me deploy some mechanisms of unfairness and dishonesty towards you. By the way, I have called But you know, like the liberal media, one way or the other, can take it. But what about truthfulness then towards his own base? Do you think he is true to the ordinary guy or or woman in Long Island, the the you and and the people who have grown up with with perhaps without your opportunities? My my cousin who never finished high school, who's a clamor out on Long Island Sound, loves the guy. My other cousin, Augie, who's a autoglass uh, installer, Loves the guy, so it doesn't really matter, does it? You know, you're. you're well, it matters it, it, in it, a sense. It, if it you... matters to a journalist who's seeking objective truth, but what it really doesn't matter is, are these people galvanized around him, and why? And the answer is, there's been a vacuum of advocacy for these people for four decades. Nobody has come into their zone and talked their language and related to them and offered some level of advocacy. Your country has also starved for that, which is one of the reasons why so many people voted for the Brexit, which likely is against their economic interests. You know, if your country was able to get a do-over, my suggestion would be not to vote for the Brexit. But you know what happens is the people that are in power, they like power more than they like the people. Because if you're people that were in power, they would say, hey, let's do a do-over here. It's better for the country. I think the underlying worry, whether you're towards the left or the right of the spectrum, is the societies that their politics takes a such a dim view of the idea of truth, even if they fall short on many occasions, end up in a, a worse position. Does that not appeal to you at all? You seem to be saying it, it really, really no, doesn't and, matter. And it's not that it's not me. I don't like it at all. Okay, one of the reasons why I lasted eleven days is that I like telling people the truth. When I got done with my press conference, which was seen by fifty million people, an opposition research person called me on my phone, a Republican Party, said, Hey, you can't tell the truth from the White House. You're not allowed to do that in Washington. No more than you're allowed to do that here in your parliament. The politicians are lying when their mouths are moving and the people are getting tired of it. You're moving into an age of transparency now where everybody has a smartphone. You can't kill a journalist in a consulate anymore. You're going to find out about it. Okay, so the people are fed up with it. And so whether you like Mr. Trump or Mr. President, you don't don't like the truth about what he can do for them. Of course not. What politician is telling the truth? Let me let me let me ask you a question. I know it's your podcast, but let me ask you a question. What politician do you know in the West that has a twenty-five year plan to fix these intractable problems? Do you know any? No, but that, there are two questions. You asked me, do they try to speak the truth? And I think that a lot of politicians take the edges off the truth. But they, fundamentally, in the democratic tradition, spend believe too in much it. time with politicians in. Well, well, they lie. On, you you no, asked they, me a they, question. They, they let me un- answer you. They and unequivocally then put it back lie. To you. The politicians unequivocally lie. Well, as you say, because you, you want to start from this view of absolute cynicism of political leaderships. All you need to keep saying is politicians lie. I'm suggesting that all politicians lie to a certain extent and that some lie more than most. Would that be fair? 
Is that cynical or is that just observational and looking at something that's very obvious and that people are very tired of? On both sides of this pond, people are very tired of the lying. I want to talk to you about the transition team and, and, and something that has just come back into the news with Michael Lewis's new book, The Fifth Risk. He says there was no Obama handover. The Trump team just didn't turn up to the traditional handover. Uh, you were on that team. Why mm-hmm. didn't you? Well, it had to do with a number of different things. I think that uh, once the president won and he took a look at what Governor Christie had done in the formation of the transition, for whatever reason, they decided to discard it. And so we can analyze that, whether it made sense or not. Uh, But the president appointed Vice President Pence after he removed Governor Christie from the transition. And so we were understaffed, but the president took a position that he didn't think that all of these people were necessary to have in government. And so he's probably operating the executive branch at a 30 to 35 percent deficit to the prior administration. But what view did you take at the time? Because you don't seem to be backwards in in your opinions. You come forwards. You could have just gone and said, look, we we don't want to do anything very much that Obama did on whatever, on the economy or on foreign policy. But we'll take the class, as Michael Lewis put it. No, no. my, My view of the situation is that very smart men and women from both the left and the right did it a certain way for a reason. And to take all of that collective knowledge over, say, 100 years and throw it in a dustbin and start over, I wouldn't have done that. I think the president is right, though, that there are too many people in government. The population, the 4 million governmental employees at the federal government level is too much. It's too ponderous. What do you think of the present Trump team who strikes you as being useful or not on the present Trump team? Well, you'd have to name people. I mean, you know, obviously the president is very useful. He's had a very successful run. The economy's booming. Uh, he's going to straighten out the North Korean situation. You'll get a trade deal done in the EU and you'll get a trade deal done with China, very similar to the trade deal that he did with the Canadians and the Mexicans, putting a hurt on the Iranian regime, which will likely end that theocracy and it will lead to more stability in the Middle East. It's quite so a bold all, claim that you're going to end Iranian are, theocracy, isn't it? In 1982, uh, Ronald Reagan spoke at the Notre Dame University. He said the final pages of communism are now being written. They're about to return to the dustbin of history. Do you think the Iranian theocracy is going to last if the Chinese and the Russians and the Americans want them out? Last is a very long word. Let's see. Let's talk a bit about that team. You said Donald Trump was useful on his own team. I suppose that's good to know. But uh, do you think the team is well balanced at the moment? Well, you, you, know, you, you could, could go always around the team. Back. Stephen Mnuchin's doing a phenomenal job. I think he's been a great Secretary of Treasury. General Mattis, uh, Secretary Mattis, has been great. I think that uh, Larry Kudlow's doing a very good job. John Bolton, I've known him for 15 years. I think he has the president's trust. He's doing a very good job. You know, I'm not fond of General Kelly. I think he's destroyed the morale inside the uh, community of the West Wing, and he has been too militant in terms of his operating and management style. And that's all of those things that I said a year ago and those things that I I analyzed in my book are coming true today. And so, look, I may not be the best communications director, right? I only lasted 11 days, but I built two very good businesses, and I know how to evaluate talent. And so I know how to mix and match people, and I can tell you who works and who doesn't. And so Kudlow works. Uh, believe it or not, Navarro works. He works inside the system. And I can name the people for you, but, you know, there's some that work and some that don't. The president knows that. He's not stupid. You've got to give us your advice to have someone lasting 11 days in a high-profile job, what you learn. Well, I got an 11-day PhD 
in Washington dishonesty. I got a. I, I understand now that the screenwriters from the Game of Thrones got together with the Hunger Games, and that wasn't enough, so they added the House of Cards screenwriters, and that still wasn't enough, so they went with the Veep people because there had to be a little bit of comedy. And so these people are absolutely treacherous and they're absolutely ruthless because they're close to power. And so the power is a corruptive force. And so what I also like learned, everyone's fault except yours. No, I I made probably ten phone books of mistakes in my life, and I probably made five phone books of mistakes in eleven days. I was ill suited for the job for many different reasons, but the main one is I had no experience in dealing with people like that. It came to a head when you described Steve Bannon, who's also been on this show, as a, as a self-relating mm-hmm. sort of person. I think that would... Yeah, that's a little unfair is because... It, it's unfair yeah, it's you a little unfair right. because what happened was the reporter, if you listen to the entire tape, he was suggesting to me that he wanted to do a profile on me in The New Yorker. And I said I wasn't as self-promotional as Steve Bannon. And then I used that comment, okay, which was an aggressive comment that I regret. Having said that, I trusted the reporter. and That was my mistake. He was a guy that I trusted and I shouldn't have trusted. I don't disclaim blame. I take full accountability for the mistake. And I say, by the way, it cost me my job. Would you want to go back if no. Donald Trump asked you no. a political career? No. No, my wife is outside looking through the glass, shaking her head, saying, yes, of course he would go back because he's stupid. But no, I'm not going to go back because I got my family back together and I got my business back together and I love my life. Okay. And by the way, I'm loyal to the president. I never broke ranks with the president. I want you to think about that. Okay. I came in. He asked me to do a job. Okay. Couldn't stand Steve Bannon. And by the way, what I said about Steve Bannon, you had him on the podcast, so you know he's a little crazy. What I said about Steve Bannon is exactly what the president said about Steve Bannon in January, but for the expletive. Because I know how to evaluate talent. This guy's a very, very bad guy. He's a treacher to the society. And I'll debate Steve Bannon. Maybe you invite him and sit at that microphone. Well, I'll debate I, him any time, any place, anywhere. Uh, for that one, Mr. Scarman, she said, well, uh, man. <laughs> I will swim over here if you can get Steve Bannon to sit right there. Let's see. Well, Mr. Money, Bannon, you have a right. challenge here on The Economist Desks. Um, when you were talking about your time, that brief time that you had there you know, in that job, in the White House, you did say you wanted to open up. You wanted to turn the lights back on. You well, felt I did that. that, and you did well. Yeah. You did that for at least for the short amount of time that you were there. We're now talking at a time when Donald Trump or Team Trump, at least, has taken away the press pass of someone who asked an inconvenient question at a mm-hmm. press conference. Do you think that the response of the White House to Jim Acosta and CNN I was totally, correct? No, I totally disagree with it. I, I, why make Jim into a martyr is totally unnecessary. Uh, I'm a big believer in the First Amendment. We're talking about people that can be corrupted by power. Our founders knew that, which is why you have the free press. You have to hold these people in power accountable. One of my first moves, perhaps one of my only moves, was to turn the lights and cameras back on because I think it's very important to have that relationship. It can be an adversarial relationship. I understand that. Look throughout history. Democrats and Republican presidents have had some levels of adversarialness to the relationship with the press. But I don't like the war declaration. You were mentioning Bannon. Bannon declared war on the press at CPAC in February of 2017. That was a disaster for the president. On my first day, he turned to me in the Oval Office and said, why do you think I'm having such a big problem with the press? I had a 45-year great relationship with him. I said, you let Bannon declare war. Once you declare war, the matches are struck and the dynamite sticks are close Steve by. Steve Bannon's gone, but uh, Jim Acosta still had his press pass taken away. I mean, it's not, he, it's he not has the, because the, the monkeys. Because it's, it's the organ grinder, isn't it? It's what Donald Trump wants. But it's the monkeys too because let me tell you something. What happens, what happens to a guy like President Trump is you have to intellectually appeal to him 
that you are competent and you can handle the thing. And once he knows that, he'll delegate it to you and it'll relax. And what happens to these people is they go to have a press conference on Wednesday. No one stood up to him and said, hey, you're too tired for that. You just did 11 campaign stops in eight days. Why don't you take a chill for a day? And why don't we do the press conference on a Thursday before you leave for Europe? And so he's agitated. He goes into the press room. The guy's being disrespectful to him. Whatever you think of Acosta, it was disrespectful. And he wants to pull his press pass. I think the whole thing is bad. Let's press a reset button. It's costing the president approval points, the war with the media. 2020 run for, for Donald Trump. A lot of people saying the midterms, you know, meh, so-so for, for each side, but the Trump machine hasn't stopped rolling. Do you think he wants a 2020 run? No question. He's raised $210 million. He'll have $2 billion uh, at the time that he's ready to run for re-election. He has Air Force One and he has a booming economy. And so... Uh, also, he's a pretty tough, formidable character on a debate stage. And I'll say this to you, and the person that runs against him will have an internationally recognized nickname for the rest of their lives. Okay, so he'll demolish the person that's running next to them. And so he'll win re-election. And I think so, he'll win re-election. hundred percent. You have to remember, the midterms are not a good he, He's register. getting on in years. I mean, even without the, all the controversy that surrounds the Trump presidency, you think he really wants another four years of this and tussle on that? Okay, so hill? the people that say that he doesn't want it, they don't know him. These people don't give up the presidency in. If you're Lyndon Johnson and you're up against the war and Robert Kennedy, you give up the presidency because you don't want to embarrass yourself. But this guy's not giving up the presidency. Who do you think he listens to now? I think he has a very good brain. You know, he's like a very stable sort of a genius. Didn't you know that? He's a stable sort of a genius. He listens to himself. You know that. He doesn't take advice then. He You're does. not there. He takes Bannon's advice. not there. People float in and no, out no, no, of this he, eventful he, he takes advice. Game of the Thrones. Way, the way you give him advice okay, is not the traditional way that you give somebody advice. You have to, you have to appeal to the president's uh, intellect by understanding where he's going directionally and then suggest to him that the outcome that he's predicting is not going to be the outcome that's going to happen. And once he realizes that you may be right about that outcome assessment, he'll change his mind. Have you got a bet on the Democratic challenger? Who will make it through on the Democratic um, side? I, I don't know, but I think they're going to have... 10, possibly 12 people running. Uh, uh, Senator Warren's raised $20 million. I think it would be unlikely to believe she's not going to run. Mike Bloomberg? Does he float your boat as a, f- a Mike, finance guy Mike, in New Mike York? Bloomberg would be a formidable candidate. One of the issues for uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg is he'd have to win the nomination. The Re- Republican Party already has their nominee. That's going to be Donald J. Trump. The Democratic Party has moved very, very far to the left. And Mike Bloomberg is a center-right person on business, and he's fairly left-leaning on social stuff. He may not be able to get the nomination, but if he got it, with his money and his skill set and capability, he'd be a tough competitor. You've gone back now to the old day job, and Skybridge Capital, your firm, has announced a multi-billion investment fund for the president's opportunity zones, part of the tax cuts and jobs agenda in the act that was passed last year. Our reporting in this week's issue, which, of course, you therefore won't have had time to see, says that these opportunity zones don't always reflect the areas of greatest need. Look, I mean, I I understand the criticism of the tax plan. I understand that some of these areas are already gentrified because they're using the 2010 census to establish what an opportunity zone is. And a lot of those areas have already been improved by the economy. But the more broad point, because the one thing about government is that they get things roughly right. They never get them precisely right. And so there's 8,700 opportunity zones and there's an opportunity to unleash one to three trillion dollars of capital into areas of the country that need the help. They need infrastructure help. They need commercial and residential real estate help. And so if you can take 
low basis stock that is now trading at a high value and you can convince people to sell it and move it into an opportunity zone to take advantage of the tax deferral and very good property management or business management, I think that's going to be unbelievably good for the United States. And it's an off-balance sheet transaction. The IRS would never receive that money anyway. And so this is an opportunity to plow it into places that need it. You're clearly very well read. You like to, to bring in literary themes along with your observations of finance and politics. And Gatsby, Great Gatsby, comes up a number of times. And you describe seeing Mr. Trump as Great Gatsby when you first encountered him and you run that theme onwards. But of course, Gatsby ends in a disaster, doesn't it? And an implosion. And yeah, that, what? that wasn't the intent of the book. No? First of all, the, the theme of Gatsby is the town I grew up in on the water, on the edge of the water. I grew up in the middle class area, but on the edge of the water, that was East Egg in the book. And so when you were in high school in my town, in the public high school, you had to read that book four times. And so I'm bringing up the book because it's an elemental story of the American dream. But the person, Jay Gatsby, is actually a very flawed figure. There's a nefarious nature to Gatsby in that book that the president really doesn't have. But if Trump has a downfall, what is it? Well, we all have deficits in our personalities. And so, you know, the, the president's uh, likely downfall is that he gets pigheaded when he is under assault. And so there's a way to diffuse assault through humor and self-deprecation uh, that John Kennedy understood and Ronald Reagan probably understood better. But the president, when he's under assault, he gets pigheaded. You said all politicians lied earlier. And I was sort of I wanted to take you to task a bit on you talk about Reagan in the book, I think, very well. But would it be fair to say that Ronald Reagan didn't lie as much, or particularly not lie as much to what he could do for his base as much as Donald Trump? Different time. It's a different era. You know, so the he makes the but he absolutely lied. You remember Eisenhower lied about the U-2 spy plane. He told everybody it was a weather balloon. Then they pulled Gary. It was a small matter of national security involved with Eisenhower, which is but not. They pulled, they pulled Francis Gary Powers out of the Siberian prison. Come on. I mean, these guys lie. They lie. They lie more now than they did before? Uh, no. The president does it. As I said, he does it to get you upset. You personally. He, he, you, 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 no, I don't know. You're in a collection of people, but yes. You're probably one of the people that he enjoys getting upset. Anthony Scaramucci, thank you very much for joining us. I enjoyed this. I hope you liked it as much as I did. And we want to hear what you think. Is Mr. Trump really the people's president? And what might a 2020 challenger learn from his populist style? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't already, subscribe. The first 12 issues are just $12 or £12 if you go to economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.